Section 22 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard. Chapter Alfred R. Wallace, Part 2. Early in the year 1854, Alfred Russell Wallace reached Asia. He had decided that he would make the first and best collection of the flora and fauna of the Malay archipelago that it was possible to make. White men had skirted the coast of many of the islands, but information as to what there was inland was mostly conjecture and guesswork. Just how long it would take Wallace to make his Malaysian natural history survey he did not know, but in a letter to Darwin he stated that he expected to be absent from England at least two years. He was gone eight years, and during this time walked, paddled, or rode horseback 15,000 miles and visited many islands never before trod by the foot of a white man. The city of Singapore served him as a base or headquarters, because from there he could catch trading ships that plied among the islands of the archipelago and to singapore he could also ship and there store his specimens from singapore he made sixty separate voyages of discovery in all he sent home over one hundred twenty five thousand natural history specimens including about ten thousand birds which later on were all stuffed and mounted under his skilful direction on returning to england wallace took six years in preparation of his book the malay archipelago a most stupendous literary undertaking which covers the subjects of botany geology ornithology entomology zoology and anthropology in a way that serves as a regular mine of information and suggestion for natural history workers the book in its original form i believe sold for ten pounds fifty dollars and was issued to subscribers in parts it was bought not only by students but by a great number of general readers there being enough adventure mixed up in the science to spice what otherwise might be rather dry reading for instance there is a chapter about killing orangutans that must have served my old friend paul du chalou as an excellent raw stock in compiling his own recollections wallace states that the only foe for which the orang really has a hatred is the crocodile it seems to share with man a shuddering fear of snakes although orangs have no part in making kentucky famous but the crocodile is his natural and hereditary enemy and as if to get even with this ancient foe who occasionally snaps off a young orang in his prime the orangs will often locate a big crocodile and jumping on his back beat him with clubs and when he opens his gigantic mouth the female orangs will fill the cavity with sticks and stones and keep up the fight until the crocodile succumbs and quits this vale of crocodile tears the orang is distinct and different from the chimpanzee and gorilla which are found only in western africa in borneo the man-ape is quite numerous this is the animal that has given rise to all those tales 
about the wild man of borneo which that good man p t barnum kept alive by exhibiting a fine specimen barnum's original wild man lived at waltham massachusetts and belonged to the baptist church he recently died worth a hundred thousand dollars which money he left to found a school for young ladies the orang or mias hides in the swampy jungles and rarely comes to the ground the natives regard them as sort of a sacred object and have a great horror of killing them indeed a person who kills a man-ape they regard as a murderer so when wallace announced to his attendants that he wanted to secure several specimens of these wild men of the woods they cried alas he is making a collection it will be our turn next and they fled in terror wallace then hired another set of servants and resolved to make no confidants but just go ahead and find his game he had hunted for weeks through forest and jungle but never a glimpse or sight of the man-ape he had almost given up the search and concluded with several english scientists that this orangutan was a part of that great fabric of pseudoscience invented by imaginative sailor-men who took most of their inland little journeys around the capstan and so musing seated in the doorway of his bamboo house he looked out upon the forest and there only a few yards away swinging from tree to tree was a man-ape it seemed to him to be about five times as large as a man he seized his gun and approached the beast stopped glared and railed at him in a voice of wrath it broke off branches and threw sticks at him wallace thought of the offer made him by the south kensington museum one hundred pounds in gold for an adult male skin and skeleton to be properly preserved and mounted seventy-five pounds for a female the huge animal showed its teeth cast one glance of scornful contempt on the puny explorer and started on swinging thirty feet at a stretch and catching hold of the limbs with its two pairs of hands wallace grasped his gun and followed lured by the demonic shape a little of the superstition of the natives had gotten into his veins he dare not kill the thing unless it came toward him and he had to shoot it in self-defense it traveled in the trees about as fast as he could on the ground occasionally it would stop and chatter at him throwing sticks in a most human way as if to order him back finally the instincts of the naturalist got the better of the man and he shot the animal it came tumbling to the ground with a terrific crash grasping at the vines and leaves as it fell it was quite dead but wallace approached it with great caution it proved to be a female of moderate size in height about three and a half feet six feet across from finger to finger needless to say that wallace had to do the skinning and mounting of the skeleton alone his servants had chills of fear if asked to approach it the skeleton of this particular orang can now be seen in the darby museum in a few hours after killing his first orang wallace heard a peculiar crying in the forest and on search found a young one evidently the baby of the one he had killed the baby did not show any fear at all evidently thinking it was with one of its kind for it clung to him piteously with an almost human tenderness 
says Wallace. When handled or nursed, it was very quiet and contented, but when laid down by itself, would invariably cry, and for the first few nights was very restless and noisy. I soon found it necessary to wash the little mias, as well. After I had done so a few times, it came to like the operation, and after rolling in the mud would begin crying, and continue until I took it out and carried it to the spout, when it immediately became quiet, although it would wince a little at the first rush of the cold water, and make ridiculously wry faces while the stream was running over its head. It enjoyed the wiping and rubbing dry amazingly, and when I brushed its hair it seemed to be perfectly happy, lying quite still with its arms and legs stretched out. It was a never-failing amusement to observe the curious changes of countenance by which it would express its approval or dislike of what was given to it. The poor little thing would lick its lips, draw in its cheeks, and turn up its eyes with an expression of the most supreme satisfaction, when it had a mouthful particularly to its taste. On the other hand, when its food was not sufficiently sweet or palatable, it would turn the mouthful about with its tongue for a moment, as if trying to extract what flavor there was, and then push it all out between its lips. If the same food was continued, it would proceed to scream and kick about violently, exactly like a baby in a passion. When I had had it about a month, it began to exhibit some signs of learning to run alone. When laid upon the floor, it would push itself along by its legs, or roll itself over, and thus make an unwieldy progression. When lying in the box, it would lift itself up to the edge, in an almost erect position, and once or twice succeeded in tumbling out. When left dirty or hungry or otherwise neglected, it would scream violently till attended to, varied by a kind of coughing noise, very similar to that which is made by the adult animal. If no one was in the house, or its cries were not attended to, it would be quiet after a little while but the moment it heard a footstep would begin again harder than ever. It was very human. The most lasting result of the wanderings of Alfred Russell Wallace consists in his having established what is known to us as the Wallace Line. This line is a boundary that divides, in a geographical way, that portion of Malaysia which belongs to the continent of Asia from that which belongs to the continent of Australia. The Wallace Line covers a distance of more than 4,000 miles, and in this expanse there are three islands in which Great Britain could be set down without anywhere touching the sea. Even yet the knowledge of the average American or European is very hazy about the size and extent of the Malay archipelago, although through our misunderstanding with Spain, which loads us up with possessions we have no use for, we have recently gotten the geography down and dusted it off a bit. There is a book by Mrs. Rose Innes, wife of an English official in the Far East, who, among other entertaining things, tells of a headhunter chief who taught her to speak Malay, and she, wishing to reciprocate, offered to teach him English. But the great man begged to be excused, saying, Malay is spoken everywhere you go, east, west, north, or south, 
but in all the world there are only twelve people who speak english and he proceeded to name them our assumptions are not quite so broad as this but few of us realize that the protestant christian religion stands fifth in the number of communicants as compared with the other great religions and that against our hundred millions of people in america the malay archipelago has over two hundred millions wallace found marked geological botanical and zoological differences to denote this line and from these things he proved that there had been great changes through subsidence and elevation of the land at no very remote geologic period asia extended clear to borneo and also included the philippine islands this is shown by the fact that animal and vegetable life in all of these islands is almost identical with life on the mainland the same trees the same flowers the same birds the same animals as you go westward however you come to islands which have a very different flora and fauna totally unlike that found in asia but very similar to that found in australia australia be it known is totally different in all its animal and vegetable phenomenon from asia in australia until the white man very recently carried them across there were no monkeys apes cats bears tigers wolves elephants horses squirrels or rabbits instead there were found animals that are found nowhere else and which seem to belong to a different and so-called extinct geologic age such as the kangaroo wombats the platypus which the sailors used to tell us was neither bird nor beast and yet was both in birds australia also has very strange specimens such as the ostrich which cannot fly but can outrun a horse and kills its prey by kicking forward like a man australia also has immense mound-making turkeys honeysuckers and cockatoos but no woodpeckers quail or pheasants wallace was the first to discover that there are various islands some of them several hundred miles from australia where the animal life is identical with that of australia and then there are islands only a comparatively few miles away which have all the varieties of birds and beasts found in asia but this line that once separated continents is in places but fifteen miles wide and is always marked by a deep water channel but the seas that separate borneo and sumatra from asia although wide are so shallow that ships can find anchorage anywhere the wallace line proving the subsidence of the sea and upheaval of the land has never been seriously disputed and is to many students the one great discovery by which wallace will be remembered wallace's book on the geographical distribution of animals sets forth in a most interesting manner the details of how he came to discover the line it was in eighteen hundred fifty five that wallace alone in the wilds of the malay archipelago became convinced of the scientific truth that species were an evolution from a common source and he began making notes of his observations along this particular line of thought some months afterwards he wrote out his belief in the form of an essay but then he had no definite intention of what he would do with the paper beyond keeping it for future reference when he returned to england 
In the fall of 1857, however, he decided to send it to Darwin to be read before some scientific society, if Darwin considered it worthy. And this paper was read on the evening of July the 1st before the Linnaeus Society with one by Darwin on the same subject, written before Wallace's paper arrived, wherein the identical views are set forth. Darwin and Wallace expressed what many other investigators had guessed or but dimly perceived. Of the six immortal modern scientists, three began life working as surveyors and civil engineers, Wallace, Tyndale, Spencer. From the number of eminent men, not forgetting Henry Thoreau, Leonardo da Vinci, Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, Washington, I, nor old John Brown, who carried a gunter's chain and manipulated the transit, we come to the conclusion that there must be something in the business of surveying that conduces to clear thinking and strong independent action. If I had a boy who by nature and habit was given to futilities, I would apprentice him to a civil engineer. When two gangs of men begin a tunnel, working towards each other from different sides of a mountain, dreams, poetry, hypothesis, and guesswork had better be omitted from the equation. Here is a case where metaphysics has no bearing. It is a condition that confronts them, not a theory. Theological explanations are assumptions built on hypotheses, and your theologian always insists that you shall be dead before you can know. If a bridge breaks down or a fireproof building burns to ashes, no explanation on the part of the architect can explain away the miscalculation. But your theologian always evolves his own fog, into which he can withdraw at will, thus making escape easy. Darwin, Huxley, Spencer, Tyndall, and Wallace all had the mathematical mind. Nothing but the truth would satisfy them. In school, you remember how we sometimes used to work on a mathematical problem for hours or days. Many would give it up. A few of the class would take the answer from the book and in an extremity force the figures to give the proper result. Such students, it is needless to say, never gained the respect of either class or teacher, or themselves. They had the true theological instinct, but a few kept on until the problem was solved, or the fallacy of it had been discovered. In life school, such were the men just named, and the distinguishing feature of their lives was that they were students and learners to the last. Of this group of scientific workers, Alfred Russell Wallace alone survives, aged 89 at this writing, still studying, earnestly intent upon one of nature's secrets that four of his great colleagues years ago labeled unknown, and the other two marked unknowable. To some it is an anomaly and contradiction that a lover of science, exact, cautious, intent on certitude, should accept a belief in personal immortality. Still, to others, this is regarded as positive proof of his superior insight. All thinking men agree that we are surrounded by phenomena that to a great extent are unanalyzed, but Herbert Spencer, for one, thought it a lapse in judgment to attribute to spirit intervention 
mysteries which could not be accounted for on any other grounds it was equal to that sin against science which darwin committed and which he atoned for in contrite public confession when he said it surely must be this otherwise what is it hence we assume and so on some recent writers have sought to demolish wallace's argument concerning spiritism by saying he is an old man and in his dotage wallace once wrote a booklet entitled vaccination a fallacy which created a big dust in doctor's row and was cited as corroborative proof along with his faith in spiritism that the man was mentally incompetent but this is a deal worse excuse for argument than anything wallace ever put forth the real fact is that wallace issued a book on spiritism in eighteen hundred seventy four and in eighteen hundred ninety six reissued it with numerous amendments confirming his first conclusions so he has held his peculiar views on immortality for over thirty years and moreover his mental vigor is still unimpaired whether the proof he has received as to the existence of disembodied spirits is sufficient for others is very uncertain but if it suffices for himself it is not for us to quibble wallace agrees to allow us to have our opinions if we will let him have his his views are in no sense those of christianity rather they might be called those of theosophy as the personal god and dogma of salvation and atonement are entirely omitted the doctrine of evolution he carries into the realm of spirit his belief is that souls reincarnate themselves many times for the ultimate object of experience growth and development he holds that this life is the gateway to another but that we should live each day as though it were our last to this effect we find in a recent article wallace quotes a little story from tolstoy a priest seeing a peasant in a field ploughing approached him and asked how would you spend the rest of this day if you knew you were to die tonight the priest expected the man who was a bit irregular in his church going to say i would spend my last hours in confession and prayer but the present replied how would i spend the rest of the day if i were to die tonight why i'd plough hence wallace holds that it is better to plough than to pray and that in fact when rightly understood good ploughing is prayer all useful effort is sacred and nothing else is or ever can be wallace believes that the only fit preparation for the future lies in improving the present please pass the dotage end of section twenty two